Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Bradyware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you like this podcast, please subscribe in your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So the topic uh, for this episode is, should I become an adjunct professor? And I want to cover this topic because I think almost every accomplished professional at some point or another gives thought to this particular path, whether independently you, you, you start thinking about what would it like to be a professor or maybe you're recruited, right? Maybe somebody sees you out in the, in the wild, so to speak, and they think you'd be a great professor and they try to recruit you in. Um, but whatever the path is, I think most people are, are confronted with it. And, you know, I've, I've been a, uh, a guest speaker for more classes than I can count, but I haven't been an adjunct professor formally necessarily. Um, but it, it is, it is rewarding. Um, it is fun to get in there into a classroom and teach people who want to learn and to lead an audience through an education experience of some kind. And I imagine being able to do that over the course of a semester where there's a long narrative, a long instructional narrative that you're leading your students through, I think has the potential to be immensely rewarding as well. And I think some people look at becoming an adjunct professor relatively early in their careers. It might be something they do to help build their personal brand. It might be something they do to um, build a resume. It might be something that they do to, um, frankly, get extra income while they're getting their main career or their business off the ground. Uh, I've even seen the case where you might want to be an, an adjunct professor because it's a great way to source young talent for your business. But, you know, whatever the reason, you, you see a lot of people who are um, – you know, early to mid part of their career and they, they decide on that path. And then there's the other category where it's somebody who's kind of in give back mode. It might be somebody who's already retired or somebody who's contemplating retirement. They've, they've more or less made their dollars. They've, they've made whatever brand they're going to make. And now, you know, they see being a, a professor as a, as a second act or at least part of a second act in which is a side gig. And, um, you know, unless you know an adjunct professor, it's it's hard to kind of understand exactly what you're what you're in for. And there isn't actually a ton of material on the internet. Either. There's some, um, but not necessarily a lot. So I, I think I know I'm going to enjoy this 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 interview, and I think you, the listeners, are going to as well. Because if you're thinking about this at all, or at some point you will be, 
I think I think getting inside the head and getting inside the life experience of somebody who's walked this path is um, uh, is something that you're going to find very helpful. So, to that end, joining us is my my friend Gary Clement, who is president of Clement Asset Management, and is a newly retained assistant professor at the University of Alabama, and he is speaking with us from Tuscaloosa today. Gary is a financial services professional with 20 years of experience in the financial services industry with discount brokers, independent broker dealers, and wirehouses. He has extensive knowledge of financial service business models and delivery channels, investment strategies and approaches, and investment products and vehicles. He's a passionate instructor and financial coach both to individuals and large groups. Gary's an accomplished communicator with proven leadership qualities and holds just about every license that FINRA makes you hold if you're going to be in that industry or can offer if you're going to be in that industry is more than you need to. Um, Gary has been an adjunct professor at the College for Financial Planning, an adjunct professor with Clark Atlanta University, and an instructor with a CFP certification program. Gary himself is a graduate of, Gary, you have to help me pronounce this, at Shane University? Caney. Okay, Caney University of Pennsylvania. With a degree in mathematics, summa cum laude, I did not know that. That explains why he kicks my ass in chess all the time. And has passed level one of the CFA Institute's Chartered Financial Analyst Program and is a doctoral student at the University of Georgia's Financial Planning Study. All-around good guy, phenomenal chess player. Gary Clement, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks for having me. So what does it mean to you, just sort of definitionally, to be an adjunct professor? What, what is it? Well, you know, I think, you know, a lot of the things that you talked about in the intro are really important in terms of thinking about being adjunct instructor. But, you know, one of the things I think is important is, you know, you got to have a a vision for why you want to do it, um, what do you want to accomplish in doing it, and who do you want to impact by doing it. So when I think of the idea of adjuncting, one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, do you have an a love for teaching? Do you enjoy teaching? Do you enjoy being around people that are learning? And that, I think, fuels a lot of it. When I look at it, I look at it as something that should be fun because although it's rewarding in a lot of different ways, it's not really rewarding financially. <laughs> so <laughs> so no, nobody's thinking they're getting rich by being an adjunct professor. No, and, and I don't think that that should be the purpose for doing it. Um, you know, one of the things that I found in, in doing it immediately after I got my CFP um, was I wanted to have some adjunct as I was building my business. So I wanted to have some adjunct means of, of um, earning some money, but I found that I enjoyed it so much. But I also found something really important. I found that it was really synergistic with what I do. So as I got better as an instructor, I got better as an advisor. As I got better as an advisor, I got better as an instructor. So I think that if you're looking at doing something that will build your skills, keep you engaged in a way that you wouldn't normally be engaged as a professional to get better continually, incrementally, adjuncting is a great way to do that. And part of the reason is you really never know what the limitations of your knowledge really are, because you don't necessarily uh, have to have to confront that. But when you have to study hard enough to present a class and when you have to respond to questions that you may not have anticipated, it gives you a great opportunity 
to continue to learn on a much deeper level. And of course, just the repetition of doing it over and over and over again. You know, you get to be really fluent in your subject matter. And there's no other way to do that other than by teaching. And then it gets down to how we learn as people, you know, and they say that you only learn a small percentage or retain a small percentage if you read it. You only uh, retain a, a small percentage if you attend a presentation, but you really retain a whole lot more if you teach that subject matter. And I think that all of that is really true. You know, one of uh, one of my, my mentors, I have not had many in my career, but one <clears throat> who I did have <clears throat> told me that if you want to ever learn something, teach it. And I have found that to be invaluable advice because you find that when you, when you have, I found, I'm curious if you found this as well. When I, when I am called upon to teach something and often it'll be, you know, sometimes it'll be a very advanced subject matter. Sometimes it'll be very, very basic. But in, in either case, when I, when I think about presenting it and I think about how I'm going to explain it, I realize that there are some things that I've I've sort of taken for granted and never really fully explored the why. There are some things where uh, maybe my knowledge isn't state of the art. There are some places where I've gotten to bad habits. There, there, there are places where I thought I learned something and I didn't. And it was only because I was forced to look something up and nobody ever caught it. And I think that happens a lot uh, or nobody ever called me on it. Um, but, but, you know, there's something about knowing that you're going to present to an audience that just makes you focus that much more and, and sort of take care of the rigor. Um, have you found that as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think you, you really encapsulated that, you know, you really do have to study much, much harder. You have to, you have to anticipate some questions, particularly around subject matter. That's a little bit more challenging. But then there's going to be those questions that you could never anticipate. You just never thought about. And that's where the real learning opportunity comes from. Aside from, you know, the work that you have to put in to prepare, it's those questions that, you know, just come out of left field that cause you to really stretch. And you may not have an answer for them, but it's just another opportunity to go look something else up and figure out an answer. So all of those things happen when you're teaching, especially if you're teaching on a regular basis. Now, for me, lucky enough, when I started out, I was teaching adults. So these were folks that were industry professionals for the most part or career changers. So people within the range of 30 to 40, sometimes a little bit younger, sometimes a little bit older. So it was great to get questions from people that were actively engaged in the field and get an opportunity to you know, pursue some areas of inquiry that were really within their wheelhouse, but not yet in mine. So that really was a good way to uh, to do that. So that's absolutely true. And, you know, that, that that's interesting. That, that highlights something that I'd like to, to share an observation. You know, you're, a, as long as I've known you, you're, you're a low ego guy. Um, that, 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 that doesn't mean that you're not aggressive. Doesn't mean you're not driven, but you are a low ego guy. And, and, I think that a low ego personality both is more effective as an instructor and I think benefits most from being an instructor because when somebody asks you a question to which you don't know the answer, right, you don't, you don't try to tap dance away around it. You don't get defensive, 
right? You just, I'm betting that when, when you're asked that question and you have, you've been around too long not to, you know, your, your answer is, you know, that's a great question. Let me figure it out and get back to you. And then you both learn, right? Yeah. I think that that's a whole lot safer than trying to fudge an answer that's completely wrong. And you're right. I mean, a lot of times teachers want to be right. They want to have the answers, but sometimes you just don't have the answers. And it, it, it's not only safer to say, I don't have the answer at this time, but I can find the answer and get back to you. But it also gives you a certain amount of cachet as an instructor because we don't have all the answers and we, we shouldn't fake it if we don't have the answer. And at the same time, it really leads to being a teacher with integrity because you're not trying to fake it. And I think that that really helps students understand that, you know, this is all a process. It's a process for the students and it's a process for the instructor. So when you, what was your, what was your, your first position? I know it wasn't Clark Atlanta. Was it, was it uh college for financial planning? Was that your first? No, first no. it was actually Oglethorpe. Um, Oglethorpe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And to be honest with you, a lot of that ties into what we just said. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is important about being an instructor, especially a new instructor, is what I mentioned just a second ago. It's a learning experience. So when you're coming in and you're teaching for the first time, you can't expect to be great the first time. You know, but what I think is you got to really make peace with in order to be good. Sometimes you have to be bad. And I'll rephrase that a different way. If it's worth being good at something, it's also worth being bad at it until you can get good, as long as you learn from the lessons that you take day after day after day. So, you know, the first class that you might teach might be kind of rough. You know, maybe you're asked to teach something that you haven't taught before. I always looked at that as an opportunity to learn something better that I didn't know as well, even though, you know, I had to take my lumps in the classroom by, you know, not understanding things well enough to explain it well not being able to answer questions really well and and really having to rely on coming back to folks to answer questions. But if you can make it through those times and they're relatively short, if you put the time into really learning the subject matter, you know, it's, it's, it's a really great, great thing to go through that and be good enough to teach that with, with confidence as time goes by, but it's, it's a process. And for those of you who are not from the Atlanta area, Oglethorpe university is a, uh, a private institution that um, is here in Atlanta and uh, actually is about three miles south of, of, of uh, where I live. So I'm very Absolutely. familiar with it. Absolutely. And you know, you're so, you're so right about if, if you want to be good at something, you have to be willing to be, to be bad. And, you know, I, I've always, not that I'm a, a great cook at all, but I've always thought and told people that every great chef got to that point by making a ton of lousy food. Um, you know, and I like to think in my profession, you know, the best appraisal that I ever do or the best strategic advisory engagement I ever do is the last one that I do. I just, you know, that's, I'm not going to get better. I just walk off the floor and, and, and off we go. That may or may not be realistic, but, but, but you're right. I mean, it is a skill and, and it may be rough. So I want to dig deeper into that. You know, what, so your first, your first teaching gig was at, was at Oglethorpe. How did you get it? It was just pure luck, to be honest with you. Um, it was a situation where I knew that I wanted to teach. I didn't know how to go about 
getting the the job, um, I inquired, didn't really get too much, too much of an answer on inquiring. And basically I just fell into position at the right time. Oglethorpe had a program director in the CFP program that defected and went to University of Georgia and started their certification program at uh, their location at Lenox in Atlanta. And it just so happened I sent a huge package over to Oglethorpe right after that happened. So they had a new program director. The program director that was there before took almost all the instructors. So they had a need for somebody. And I stepped into that void. So it, it is it was that easy for me, but it, it, it was just something that was just luck at the time. Um, I think, though, that colleges have a pretty consistent need for adjuncts. So I think that it's important to continue to really pursue those opportunities, make relationships or establish relationships with people in departments because when they do have a need, you know, they're going to think of you and call you to take advantage of that opportunity. And that's what happened at Clark Atlanta. I, I wasn't pursuing that. It's just that I knew somebody who was the program director there and they had a need. They called me up with that need. I was able to do it and it worked out fine. So those are the things that can can make the road a little bit easier for you. But I think that even if you just really just pursued it on a regular basis Colleges do have those opportunities that come up all the time. And one of the things that makes that something that is, 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 is something that you can really latch on to is the fact that when we talked about it, uh, there's not a lot of money in adjuncting. So, you know, you're doing it for lunch money, you know, for the most part, maybe a little more than lunch money, but it's not a lot of money. So there are times when people that are adjuncting cycle out of those jobs because they have other opportunities. So those opportunities are continually coming up. So while perhaps there was some luck involved just because of the timing, they knew to call you because you said you'd sent a package to the, uh, the program director. When you say you sent a package, what does that mean? I sent my resume. I, I sent some articles that I had written. Um, I, I really put it together with color and all kinds of things. And I put it together in somewhat of a portfolio. So it was more than just a resume. You know, it really was a well-rounded idea of what I could, could uh, 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 bring as an instructor to the university. So it was, it was more extensive than a resume. But I think a, re- a resume might have done just as well, to be honest with you. Well, you'll never know, but I, but I think the I think the approach is interesting, right? Because it, to me, it makes perfect sense. If you're going to pursue an academic position, then demonstrating that you have an academic mindset, meaning that you want that you research, that you that you communicate, and you have an interest in making an intellectual contribution to your field. You know, I, I think that that's, I think that that's helpful. And I, I just putting myself in the hiring position, if I had somebody that not only sent me a resume, but, and not a CV, um, but here's also, you have to go looking for it. Here's, here, here are my fa- three favorite articles or four, whatever you did, right? Here are the three favorite things that I've, I've done and that I'm passionate about. And I think I'm an expert on, I mean, it just makes it easier to hire you if nothing else, right? 
I would like to think so. But like you said, I'll never know. Um, I right. think it was a combination of that and being in the right place at the right time. So, yeah, I, I, I do want to explore this because I think a lot of people, you know, they think about being an adjunct professor. I think they're, they're in your shoes. They, I, I'd like to do this. Um, you know, I have a, I have a passion for teaching and the other things that we talked about. You know, how do you get started? And what you described to me is it's really no different than landing another position, any other position. It's about, it's about networking and building a brand and building relationships. And the more of that you do, right, the more likely it is that you're going to quote, get lucky because you're going to get more opportunities. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that is, that puts it together in a nutshell. Now, when when you got started, now you you hold a master's degree, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. And is that kind of the table stakes to get into an adjunct position? Do you have to have a master's degree, or are there people that hold um, less advanced degrees than that that are able to find adjunct positions? You can you can get an adjunct position without a master's degree. However, uh, it's easier if you have a master's degree. And part of the reason I went forward and got the master's degree is this. When I went to Oglethorpe, I went into their CFP program as an adjunct, which didn't require that I had a master's degree. But what I noted was that a lot of the certification programs were being pulled into degree granting programs in colleges. So knowing that I wanted to continue teaching, I knew then that I would have had to at least get a master's degree to at least make sure that I was going to continually have those opportunities. So I went forward and got the master's degree and it just made it easier because many schools do require it. Some do not. And if I had to say, I'd have to say that most of them do require a master's degree. So it just made it easier for me to step in and teach in in programs. Um, And then, of course, going through the master's program, I got attracted to the idea of doing a, a doctorate, which makes it even far easier. And, you know, if you wanted to go further with teaching and be a full-time teacher or even a part-time teacher in a regular program, this is really a great way to do many of the things that you talked about a second ago, find new talent and provide opportunities for them. You can also find a way to ease into retirement because teaching is great. And as you teach the same subjects over and over again, it gets a lot easier. And being an academic in that regard, uh, is a is a really good way to not only ease into retirement, but if you're doing it full time with a big university, you're talking about a whole lot more money that you're making as well. So these are all things that you can do while you're running another business. And if you find that it's time to transition out of the business, you've got a soft landing space that, you know, is, is almost hard to beat. Now, how how is a subject matter chosen? I, I, I suspect that that many people considering an adjunct role think about, okay, well, I've, I've got this great class that, that I want to teach, right? I, I really want to teach somebody on, on uh, option theory. I want to teach medieval Russian history. I want, you know, I've got a specific subject that I want to teach. Uh, how, how, how does the subject to be taught get chosen or assigned and or matched with the instructor. Do, do you, know, you have any say, or is it just said, Hey, we have, we want, need someone to teach this class. Do you want to teach it? 
initially you don't have any say. You really have to go based on what the needs of the college actually are. And they'll let you know what they need you to teach. But one of the great things is after you teach at an institution for a while, you know, and they get to know you, if they have a need or if they're thinking about bringing on a new program, you're now in that institution. And if you're one of the people that can actually teach that class, you've got an opportunity to create something new. But generally coming in, you know, they have their needs. They know what they want. And you've got to teach what they have available for you to teach. But um, beyond that, you can create some new opportunities. So in, in your mind, looking back and how you started and how, you, how you've developed, and you, you've probably observed other adjuncts as well. You know, if I'm taking a skills inventory for myself, I'm thinking about becoming an adjunct professor. What's, what skill set do you think would sets a person up for the greatest success? Well, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, of course, being able to communicate is important. Um, but not just that. You really have to be somewhat of a performer. You know, you're presenting in front of a class. could be 12 students. It could be 100 students. We don't know, right? But you're in front of the class, and you're no different than any other person who's on stage doing something, right? So I always think that being a teacher and being a presenter is not just about the information. You have to present the information in a way that people can grab onto that information. You have to make it somewhat enjoyable. That's one of the reasons why I say you're somewhat of an entertainer or presenter, um, because you want to make it come alive for people. And at the same time, you want to be able to develop relationships because it's not just about presenting to students. You have to make a connection. And that connection is a personal connection. So all of those things are important. And then the most important thing is is just to have a great deal of inquisitiveness yourself because you're going to be dealing with a subject matter. You're probably going to go forward and do more study around the fringes of the core of the the class. Um, So those types of things are all very, very important. But the most important thing goes back to what we said before. You know, you can't be afraid to fail. You have to have that muscle. You have to be able to say, I'm going to go in here, give it my best shot, knowing that, you know, it may not be great, but the next time will be better. The next time will be better. And each time after that, you're going to be better. And you have to be able to to do that. And the bottom line is that if you do that enough, you're going to gain the kind of skill and confidence to to go anywhere after that and, and teach in any kind of environment. Now, in order to be sort of an adjunct type instructor, do you necessarily have to teach at a college or are there other outlets to are there other outlets that are available for for that kind of energy or that kind of desire? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um now you know I teach for Kaplan as well. So yep. Kaplan is a business and not a college. Uh although uh they merged with College for Financial Planning, at least the, the division that I've been in. Um And there's all sorts of classes that can be taught. There's classes that help people prepare for exams, uh, standardized tests. There's classes that, you know, are designed to help people uh, get a little bit more knowledge in a specific area. Uh, So all of those are opportunities. And those are actually opportunities that don't require an advanced degree, but you do have to have a lot of experience and have the ability to, to, um, present the material well, and bring something to the table. You know, and, and I think that's an important area to, 
to be mindful of if you're thinking about getting into teaching is that you know, although your your obvious um, target might be universities or colleges, there are lots of adult education outlets that are that that need and want teachers, particularly ones with experience. But you know, they they need people that can that can do that content. And you know, frankly, it's not everybody that wants to do this. You know, a lot of people still have stage fright. Um, Absolutely, and, and it does take a person. You know, it's like the person that's simply willing to get on the ladder, right? That's going to get the job to fix the gutter, basically. And I think, you know, instructing can sometimes be that way is, is if, if you've sort of overcome the inherent fear of performing that many of us have, you know, there are lots of outlets. And, and it, I would imagine it can be that that gig at Kaplan, for example, can help set you up for that university gig later because, you know, they see you have that teaching experience. No question about it. I'm at University of Alabama today because of Kaplan, because of Oglethorpe, because of University of Georgia. You know, so it takes that first opportunity to gain not only the skill and confidence to take on the next opportunity, but these things snowball. You know, so Oglethorpe was my first opportunity. I taught there for five years. Um, I left there and went to the certification program at University of Georgia and was there for a year, then got the opportunity with Kaplan, and then got the opportunity with College for Financial Planning and ultimately here. So, you know, this can be something that you build incrementally, and each step builds on the next step. So absolutely, that is true. So um, you've talked about building building the muscle and, and, you know, becoming better over time. Can you say specifically, where do you feel like your skills have improved or at least your confidence in them has improved over time throughout your teaching career? Wow. It's it's really just a matter of being around and going through this over and over again. And I happen to be a glutton for punishment with regards to (laughs) studying this stuff. So, you know, it really is repetition, study, really taking note of, of things that happen in the real world, things that happen in practice, things that went well in class, things that didn't go well in class. You know, I'm like you in this, in, in this regard. What really drives me continually is to be better. And what drives me to continue teaching is I'm always looking for the perfect class, knowing that there's not going to be a perfect class. There are going to be things that come up. There are going to be things that I can't answer right off the bat. There are going to be things that I say I could have explained better. And it just drives me forward to get better and better and better at it. And that's the type of thing that's exciting. It never ends. And I think that as you do that, you're going to get better. And um, it's just a desire to keep doing that. Now, you mentioned before that also being an adjunct professor has helped your business, which is in the investment and uh, wealth advisory space. Talk a little bit about that. Talk about how your time in the classroom has made you more effective in, in that side of your professional life. Yeah, it's really been very synergistic in that regard. Um, when you're used to going over concepts over and over and over again, it makes it easy when clients have questions. And I always look at myself as an educator, whether I'm in the classroom or dealing with clients. So the ability to explain things and break it down to a level that anybody should be able to understand is a skill that really cuts across either type of, of, of endeavor. 
So that really is, is the basic thing that has really been helpful. The other thing is, you know, when you have a wider base of knowledge, then you've got a lot of different tools that you can use to help a client meet a specific objective. So those things are really helpful in practice. But the major thing is just being fluent, being fluent in all the things that you need to explain to someone. Even though, again, you may not have all the answers for a client, but if you've got a lot of the answers, they roll off your tongue like you've talked about them a lot and you have it if you're a teacher, it's going to be easy for you. Now, what about the time commitment outside the classroom? You know, I, I liken teaching to what uh, what John Elway said when he retired from football. And, and you know, he retired after having won two Super Bowls finally. Um at the end of his career. And he, and, you know, when he asked about how, you know, why would you retire on top of the game? And he said that if all I had to do was play on Sunday, I'd still play, but it, it's the other six days that I can't do anymore. And I think teaching is like that too, right? You, the, the glory part is that performance time, the hour, the two hours, the three hours in the classroom, but talk about the investment of time that's required away from the classroom so that you can do that effectively. Yeah, initially it's a lot. So you could probably count on doing two, maybe three hours for every hour that you're in class just to prepare, make sure that you're ready, make sure that you've, you know, got an idea of where the questions may come from, and then be practiced enough to go in there and and really do a good job during that particular hour of teaching. Over time, however, if you do it over and over again and you're teaching the same class, that prep time goes down dramatically. And if you've done it for years, then that prep time might be close to zero, which is, which is great when you get to that point. But um, it does take time. And initially, you got to put in a lot of time just to be relatively good at it. And I say relatively good again because, you know, you're not going to have everything in place in terms of your knowledge and your ability when you step in the door to teach something for the first time. So I want to change gears here for for something that I, I think I think this is a question I think has very broad application, and that is, you know, have you been put in a position since the pandemic, or maybe you've done it otherwise, where you've had to teach remotely? Yes. And mm-hmm. how are you? How do you find? I have a view on this, but I don't. I don't want to skew it. How are you? How do you find that as a teacher? How does it make it easier? Does it make it harder? How have you had to adapt? to be in that environment? Well, you know, lucky for me, I've been doing it for a while because when I went with Kaplan, which is eight years ago now, that was all virtual. And Hmm. even though it was set up in a situation where the students can see me, I can't see them, you know, and it was a little weird at first. What I found was it's not that different than being in a regular class. The major difference is you don't have spontaneous conversations. So that's a little bit uh, of a missing but for the most part, you know, you can really approach it like you'd approach any other class. Now, last year was different because at, at Clark Atlanta, we went virtual for the, you know, when things hit in March. So we went to Zoom and, you know, we're doing a lot of that here at Alabama. And that's a little different. But again, I pursue it just like I pursue any regular class. The students are there and that, in that scenario with Zoom, you know, you can see everyone. They can see you. So it's even more like a regular class where it's different is if you've got an asynchronous class, which I do at College for Financial Planning. So there you don't really have that connection. 
and you're really interacting with people who are posting things and discussion chats and sending in assignments. So you don't have that same kind of connection. And the thing I would say about that is you want to try, you want to try to create that kind of connection in other ways, where that means meeting with students outside of class on Zoom or FaceTime or uh, emailing them back and forth. That kind of gets you that kind of connection. But it's it's tough. Um, but it is a good transition to anybody or for anybody that can do it because those are the opportunities that are going to be coming up more and more and more. Um, we see now a lot of people have to do that. A lot of people that didn't expect to do that have to do that in this particular time frame. But I think colleges are going to really note that there's a lot of opportunity there because they can fit so many more people in the classroom. They're not bound by any geographic location. And it just makes sense because the technology can support it. Here's the other thing I would say, too, and this even gets beyond adjuncting. You know, there's opportunity to create the class that you want to create and market and sell it yourself. You know, so I think that that's something that people, you know, should think about as well as they're going through the process of considering being an adjunct. Well, and, and you know, that, that certainly is an option. YouTube makes it easy and you might even be able to put it on Udemy or something like that. So you're right. We haven't even talked, we hadn't even talked about the virtual um, delivery platform in that way. Yeah, I have talked some classes uh, virtually. I did. I did one that was asynchronous. And asynchronous was rough for me. Um, There's something about it. Now it was also very long, and it was right after COVID hit, so I wasn't prepared. I was not prepared for what to expect. And quite frankly, it's it's probably one of the worst classes I ever taught. But um, uh, the thing that that hit me was you realize how much energy you receive from your audience when it's not there. When you have to produce every amount of energy yourself, that, that is emotion that is mentally and physically a massive toll that I think you have to be prepared for if you're going to teach virtually. And I was not prepared for it. It stunned me how hard it was. Yes, I, I can underscore that a thousand percent. If you are teaching a class asynchronously where you're recording yourself doing a lecture and there's no audience, not having an audience makes it really incumbent on you to, to, to build the enthusiasm, to present as though there's somebody there and to you know, create the kind of excitement around the subject matter that is easy to do when you got an audience, but very difficult to do if you don't have an audience. You have to generate that all yourself, and and sometimes it's 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 a pale second to actually doing it live with somebody in class. You know, and, and that's probably the new skill that is going to be in demand is is people are going to develop remote presentation skills and 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 techniques and such. And somebody that I, I follow on the internet told me that what he's doing, he's, he started using a standing desk for delivering virtual presentations because he just finds he has more energy when he does that. I think that's an interesting idea. And that, that in itself, I think is going to evolve into a separate skill set, virtual instruction versus uh, physical analog instruction. I think you're right. I think you're right. 
Because when you're sitting down doing it, it's mm-hmm. not the same. It is not the same at all. So as an adjunct, I'm curious if you if you ever had a chance to interact with uh, with full time faculty, you know, I know they have full time full time faculty at Clark Atlanta, for example. So maybe that's going to be the that's going to be the the, the the case study. You know, have you ever had a chance to interact? And and what I'm getting at is, you know, there's all kinds of data to suggest that the the market for full time captive instructors professors is drying up, and and tenure is really hard to come by, and those positions are being replaced, frankly, with adjuncts. Mm-hmm. And um, no industry is happy when they see their jobs being taken by another group. <laughs> you know, we, we live in a country where that is an ongoing discussion, front and center, whether we like it or not, right? So um, do you find, how do you find, how have you found your interactions with full-time faculty? Are they willing to be accepting of you? Do they put you in a distance? Are they in some cases hostile? No, honestly, my experiences have all been pretty good. But I will say this, it depends on when you're teaching. Like if you're teaching in your classes or evening classes, you're not going to have that much interaction with other professors. But if you're teaching during the normal college day, yeah, you're going to have interaction with them. And luckily for me, you know, I've always felt like I was part of the team. But one of the things you have to recognize also as an adjunct is those people that are there that have tenure, you know, they're safe. They're not really feeling threatened by your presence. And a lot of times they know that you're needed. On the other hand, the great thing is if there is an opening that comes up in the rare times that there are, you know, that person who's adjuncting has a leg up because of those relationships they have. So if they wanted to transition to a position like that, they could easily do that. So, no, I have not felt any any other way other than part of the team. And uh, it's always been a good experience. We're talking with assistant professor uh, Gary Clement of the University of Alabama, and uh, should should we should I become or should you become an adjunct professor? Um, we're coming up on our on our our time limit here, but I do have a couple more questions that I want to want to get through. And and one I think uh, it really resonates, I think, with your personal life experience. So you've 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 done something kind of interesting i kind of like to get your i would like to get your your input on on this is that you you've moved from uh kind of gig professor to adjunct and now you've gotten a full-time uh position as an assistant professor and, and you know in the university world assistant professor means that you're a professor just not tenured basically mm-hmm. and, and and first of all congratulations it's, and and second is how hard is that to do? I mean, when you start off as an adjunct, is that a realistic path? Or frankly, are you kind of a unicorn in that regard? Uh, I don't know. I don't know that I'd consider myself a unicorn in that regard. Um, and I attribute where I am now to having gone through the process at University of Georgia in the graduate uh, doctorate program. You know, I think that if you're willing to do the work that it takes to get a doctorate, then that's certainly a possibility. As far as having a master's degree and going on as a full-time professor, that's a little bit more difficult. Not to say that it's impossible, but it's certainly more difficult. And having a doctorate makes it far easier to transition into a position like that. 
Gary, this has been a great conversation. I, th- I think people that are interested in pursuing this path um, will have learned a lot by listening to this podcast. If somebody has more questions that we didn't weren't able to cover today, can they contact you? And if so, what's the best way to do that? LinkedIn is probably the best. Um, it comes straight to my phone. Um, and I like having that connection so I can see who's actually reaching out. So that's always helpful as well. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, and that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I would like to thank Professor Gary Clement so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next executive decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Wearing Company. And this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.